This week on New Mexico in Focus, a look ahead to the second congressional district candidate forum. Plus, it looks like we're going into a La Nina snowpack year. So one of the things we're really focusing on is improving our drought resiliency. What the drying Rio Grande means for wildlife like sandhill cranes returning to the valley for the fall. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. We have a double dose of environmental news for you this week as soaring temperatures have dried out the Rio Grande, and as we'll see in our land, changed recommendations for the kinds of trees we should be planting in our yards. We'll look at the latest coronavirus developments as New Mexico's case numbers creep upward and the efforts to drive down payday loan rates. We'll preview candidate conversations in the hotly contested second congressional district race, which you can watch in their entirety on Sunday night right here on NMPBS. We start with the rough and tumble of the election's final stretch. Here's the line. Welcome to the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus for Friday, October 9th, 2020. I am executive producer Kevin McDonald. Jam-packed show this week, not surprising, giving election season is in full swing. We are busy with that both in New Mexico and Focus and here at New Mexico PBS. This week we have had candidate conversations with the candidates in all three of our congressional races, the House races. Last Sunday it was CD3, Teresa Ledger-Fernandez and Alexis Martinez-Johnson. If you missed that, you can go to nmpbs.org and look under the election coverage. Thursday night, it was the 1st Congressional District with incumbent Deb Holland and her challenger, Michelle Garcia-Holmes. And this Sunday, we encourage you to tune in at 6 p.m. on NMPBS as we sit down with the candidates in the 2nd Congressional District. That is incumbent Sochil Torres-Small and challenger Yvette Harrell. It's a rematch of their race from two years ago, one of the tightest and most contested races in the country as far as congressional races go. Again, that's Sunday at 6 p.m. on KME 5.1. You can also find it on our website, Facebook, and YouTube pages. Go to NMPBS for those, although we'll link to them on the New Mexico in Focus pages as well. And it's elections that will kick off with a line this week as we look at that CD2 race with Tor Small and uh, Harrell, as well as another Closely contested race, not as close right now, but that is the U.S. Senate race. Ben Ray Lujan up a little bit in the polls there, but it is uh, tighter than a lot of the other races, so the line panelists are going to look at that this week. Uh, our panel this week, our regulars, Dan Foley, former House Minority Whip, and local attorney, Sophie Martin, as well as Inez Russell Gomez from the editorial page at the Santa Fe New Mexican. We appreciate them doing so much homework this week and coming in to talk about these issues. But let's get it going right now with some election talk. Here's Gene Grant. Early voting has started in New Mexico and more than 330,000 voters have requested absentee ballots. That's an amazing number. Commercial breaks on the local news can be entirely made up of political ads, as you know, and the debates have begun. We are in the throes of a very contentious election, as you know, and the line is here to look at two top-of-the-ballot races for Senate and the Southern New Mexico congressional seat. Joining me safely and remotely is former House Representative and line regular Daniel Foley. 
Inez Russell Gomez, right underneath him. She's the editorial page editor for the Santa Fe New Mexican. Also with us through the magic of Zoom and providing the third voice in this trio of panelists, attorney and line regular Sophie Martin. All right, let's start with the Senate race. KOB TV hosted the first debate this week. It certainly wasn't a barn burner, but Republican Mark Ronchetti worked hard to say Ben Ray Lujan was too busy playing politics to be effective. And Mr. Lujan looked to build his image as a capable D.C. navigator and paint Mr. Ronchetti as a little more than a Trump disciple. Now, Libertarian Bob Walsh was there, of course, though he largely focused on making a case for his party, not so much his own candidacy. And Sophie, you know, interesting. I'm sorry, let me start with Inez on this. My fault. Anything in the debate that perked up your ears particularly? Um, I think that the main point for the debate was that uh, Lujan has to keep introducing himself to a wider swath of New Mexicans because he is a third congressional district person. Mm -hmm. And Mark Ronchetti, for a challenger, is probably almost as well known because he was the weatherman for most of New Mexico for so many years. Right. So I thought that had to happen. And I think, you know, both of them managed to, to do that. Um, the main thing that I thought is that I think that those tired tropes like you're a Nancy Pelosi Democrat, you're radical. I don't think those work anymore. Mm -hmm. what, what I took out of it is that Lujan wanted to focus on health care and focus on the fact that if the Supreme Court takes away the Affordable Care Act, a lot of people in New Mexico are going to be losing their insurance, which is something that you know many people do fear, uh, including me, who has a 24 year old on my insurance policy. And um, Ronchetti really focused on crime. So I'm really curious now to see if people are more afraid of a criminal attacking them on the street or if they're worried about their health in the midst of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I also uh, wanted to shout out to uh, Phil Casals, our editor at The New Mexican, because we were co-sponsors of the debate and we were a little concerned that uh, the representative from our district was not going to actually appear. So I was glad that all the candidates were there, although I question whether a third party candidate eats into the time that we might be better served listening to the main party. Um, yeah. Being on the ballot, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a factor in the race. And I don't know, you know, if that's democratic or not, but I think that's a real uh, kind of a time waster. That's a tough one. It is a, you know, it is a recognized major party, but I hear your point, you know, it, as these things go, that's a tough deal. Um, you know, Daniel, let me ask you this. Inez makes an interesting point there. Mr. Ronchetti has, hung his hat on crime, certainly. He tells a lot about the story about that unfortunate situation of the break-in at his home with his wife and his kids were in the home. Very scary, sounds like, but a lot of folks have gone through that in our state, unfortunately. Is, is he ringing a bell here that people are gonna be able to hear enough of yeah, to be I able think, to get him over think, the top? I think there's a couple things. First, mm -hmm. um, uh, apparently I just got a text. We got uh, our former colleague, Justine Fox Young and her husband, Evan Blackstone, watching us live on Facebook Live and they are, uh, critiquing my uh, storage shed that I'm bunk hunkered down in the bunker here. So I just want to say that I'm following their their path and moving out and getting away from everybody. Um, I, I do think that the crime thing resonates only yeah. from the extent that from the extent that it's in the news all the time. Right. I mean, we keep hearing about whether it's, you know, people angry that they're sending out federal law enforcement folks in New Mexico to, you know, we're at the top of all the bad lists. So I think it does resonate with folks. I, I, I don't agree with Inez. I do think that at some point, you know, when when these folks are are tying you to something, I think, you know, I don't think people dislike Democrats in New Mexico, but I don't think people in New Mexico like Nancy Pelosi. Just like I don't think people dislike Republicans, but I don't think they're excited about Donald Trump. So 
You know, I think that, you you know, if you can lump that guy into the basket, you know, when we ran legislative campaigns, you know, for years we sent out, you know, the candidate was always with a picture with Manny uh, Aragon or Raymond Sanchez. And, you know, that that's what you do. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting. I was surprised at how lackluster the debate was. I mean, just this, you know, this complete, you know, it almost looked like something from, you know, a, a movie with, you know, where they both were just kind of up there. Um I, I'm surprised how close it is. Um, you know, this is a, you know, Trump is not doing very well in New Mexico from the polls mm-hmm. that we see, but Ron Ketty seems to be outperforming uh, performing that. The question is, uh, can it happen? Finally, I would say the, cr- the the crime thing is a good move for Ron Ketty because the, the battleground for Ron Ketty is Albuquerque, right? It's, right? I mean, there's a big portion of the state that's going to go for him. Yep. There's a portion of the state that's going for mm-hmm. for Ben Ray in northern New Mexico, southeastern New Mexico. You're fighting for those people in Albuquerque, especially with as many that have moved in over the last few years that are registering as independents. And I think to them, crime is a real issue that's uh, that they're facing every day in New Mexico. And mm-hmm. so I, I think it I think it, it puts them in a good position. Mr. Ronchetti, of course, has the endorsement of the Albuquerque Police Officers Association as well on that crime issue. Sophie, interestingly, the public policy polling has Mr. Lujan up by 10 points with the party faithful hewing pretty close to the Democratic Party, to the nominee, certainly. You know, and Mr. Ronchetti is keeping it close among independents, and that's that's interesting to me. What's what's your thought there? Might this turn on independents at the end of the day? I, I think the independent vote is going to be important, but yeah. I, I think there are two things that are, are notable in, in even sort of what we've already started talking about here. One is that both candidates in that debate really hewed to what we know uh, Democrats and Republicans care about on True. a national level. Mm-hmm. Polling indicates that that uh, crime is one of the highest issues for Republicans nationally. Healthcare is one of the highest issues, and of course, coronavirus one of the highest issues for for Democrats. So, in some ways, these policy stands are not surprising. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I think that's worth noting is that this is a Senate race, and New Mexicans have had a tendency, it seems to me, to look at the Senate and say. We need power in the Senate to protect us because we are a small state. We don't have a lot of mojo usually in the the House, although Ben Ray Lujan has certainly changed that for us in the last couple of years. And so we have tended to back the the, um, incumbent Mm -hmm. with people crossing party lines to support an incumbent in order to maintain that higher level of power that we have as a small state within the Senate. equal power to you know other states but still relative to our size and so of the two which one is more incumbenty it seems to me that ben ray lujan is because of his relationships uh, in dc and that right. he he may benefit as well from that relationship building it's interesting that mark ronchetti has attempted to attack that right. as being a negative but in new mexico for the senate that has generally been perceived as a bonus for us and not as not as a negative. That's an interesting point. Having an insider for us is, you know, not necessarily a negative when you think about some of our well, history. I mean, you think of Pete Domenici, That's for right. instance. Even That's as right. the state became more democratic, uh, the you know, the, the public continued to vote for Pete. Mm-hmm. Make a quick pivot here. By the way, we're going to uh, broadcast the second debate for the Senate race on Sunday, October 18th at 6 p.m. right here on NMPBS. So be sure to Gina, join us I would, there. I would, add, I would add also that Please. the state, We've been, uh, you know, what's been interesting is, is for the first time since Dominic, Senator Domenici and Senator, Senator Bigaman, 
you know, not only did we have a, an air of incumbency, there seemed to be a real desire to have one on each side, right? There right. seemed mm-hmm. to always, good New Mexico always wanted to say, hey, if the Democrats are in power in the Senate, we're good. If Republicans are, we're good. And we haven't done that for the last few years. So it's going to be interesting to see if this plays into, uh, you know, regardless of political prowess, if there's a belief that, you know, right now the Senate is front and center with the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice, with Republicans saying, hey, look, we're going to do, do it this way. We're going to have a we're going to expedite this hearing. We're going to have it done. You're seeing the Senate kind of flex its muscle. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to see if there's a New Mexicans out there who sit back and say, you know, we got someone on, on, on the left right now. Maybe we should make sure we have someone on the right. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's adding to the, the prowess of, of Ben of, uh, of Mark Ronchetti gaining some some uh, some some stature. The other thing, too, is, look, at the end of the day, you know, um, I've known Ben Ben Ray for a long time. I think Ben Ray is a fine guy. I, 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 this is just my opinion. I think when those two were standing up there, Ben Ray just doesn't look as senatorial. You know, he just doesn't look like a U.S. senator. I mean, he just, you know, he seemed kind of nervous in front of the camera. He seemed to, he just didn't seem as comfortable as you're used to seeing from, mm-hmm. you know, these U.S. senators. When you see them on TV, they seem to always, you know, be calm, have everything ready to go. And, you know, obviously. Quick favor, Daniel. Better, quick favor. Better. I need to move to CD2 here real quick. I hear you on the Senate stuff and, and Ben's uh, continence, but I need to move on. Inez, real quick, we only have a poll uh, for the 2nd Congressional District showing a very thin two-point lead for Xochitl Torres Small, and that was just before Labor Day. Um, what's, your, what's your sense of that race, real quick, as we sit here? Well, from, from Santa Fe, uh, it seems to me that the number of people voting in Dona Ana County indicate that people really are interested in this election, and I think that's going to be good for Torres Small. Right. I, I actually think she's going to do better than what it appears in the polls. I hear you. So if we pick up yeah. on that, we'll give Inez a chance to mute that. And um, you might be getting a delivery. You never know. This is Zoom world. You know, I think it's kind I of love, fun. I love seeing your dog in the <laughs> I background. I think it's it great. Really happy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, you know, I think, I, th- I think that this is one of those interesting races where neither of the, of the um, candidates is an unknown quantity right. in CD2 because, um, because they have you know, fought this out before. Mm -hmm. And so we have an incumbent who is, I think, was considered sort of an unusual choice for that district, um, but has certainly seemed to try to um, tailor her work and her positions to reflect what we do see in CD2, which is that there's the more progressive hub in Las Cruces. And then, of course, it is one of the most rural, if not the most rural, congressional mm-hmm. districts in the country. Let me, and let, so, me get, um, let, me, let me include Dan real quick on this, too, yeah. on CD2. Dan, I got a specific question here. I mean, it's, it, we've all seen the ads, and she's trying, Social Torres Small is trying so hard not to appear too liberal. And I'm curious, you're, 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 if you got a, just about 40 seconds on this, I think she's done a working? phenomenal job. I think she's done a phenomenal job, yeah. and I don't mean this negatively. I think she's definitely a progressive candidate, and okay. there's no problem with it. That's who she is. Yeah, yeah. But she clearly created a a marketing team, has done a phenomenal job making people think she's middle of the road and she's there to help everybody. And that's why I think the race is close. I think if it was a true you know, this is who she is, and this is who uh, Annette Harrell Annette Harrell is. I think that you'd find that it would be hard for Sochi to get reelected, but she's gonna she she may pull it out because 
of her ability to really put ads out there that put her in the center in the mainstream. Gotcha. And this really seems like this is about turnout. Who, yeah, way out who, with these two known candidates, who's going to turn out the vote? Mm -hmm. Very good. I'm glad you got that in. Good point there. Out of time for the moment, but after a quick pause, we'll give you a preview of Sunday night's candidate conversations in CD2. Going to stay on the second congressional district here for a moment. I already mentioned that we will have an hour-long program with in-depth interviews with both candidates that will air this Sunday, October 11th at 8 p.m. Or sorry, 6 p.m. Uh, and again, you can also find that on the website. Uh, we wanted to give you just a taste of what they talked about. And in this particular excerpt, you're going to hear both candidates talk about both the national and the state response to COVID-19. Also want to give you a heads up a week from Sunday, October 18th, we will have our U.S. Senate debate with all three candidates. That's Democrat Ben Ray Lujan, Republican Mark Ronchetti, and Libertarian Bob Walsh. You can see that also at 6 p.m. on the 18th, as well as on the website. Right now, though, a little more, a little taste of the candidates for the 2nd Congressional District. Republican Yvette Harrell and Democratic Representative Xochitl Torres-Small are familiar foes. The two ran a close campaign in 2018, and the 2nd Congressional District will be one of the nation's most hard-won congressional seats this year. On Sunday at 6 p.m., we'll air an hour-long special on NMPBS featuring a conversation with both candidates. You'll be able to watch online, too. Now, we tried to find a time and rules under which both candidates would agree to debate, but that wasn't possible this year. Here's a few minutes of what you can expect to see on Sunday night. What's your opinion on how President Trump has handled the pandemic? Could he have done anything differently in your view? I actually think the administration did a great job with the information they had at the time. I'm shutting down travel, uh, international travel to China, I think was a great step. And I, I also believe that passing the, uh, the uh, CARES package and the president signing it right away was a good step. And what I really appreciated though, early on they were having the press conferences, you know, daily, weekly, really informing the American public of what they knew and how they were going to combat it. And I really appreciated the mobilization of getting American companies to start uh, manufacturing medical equipment, respirators, masks, and not a state in the nation went without. And in fact, so much so that we had a surplus and could send overseas and help other nations. So given the information that we had at the time, I'm, I think we did a remarkable job. I think the president did. And I believe we, you know, lessons learned. Um, who could have known what this would have looked like or, or how big a virus this would be and what the uh, costs would be in terms of not only human life, but the economy, everything. So I'm sure there are a lot of lessons learned, but I believe they handled it uh, swiftly and, and really to the best of their ability. Mm -hmm. um, something a little more current about this. How do you feel about the president in his return from Walter Reed Hospital and, and being maskless uh, going back into the White House. Did you have any response to that when you watched I that? really didn't. Um, you know, I think it was concerning for the country that the president tested positive. I really appreciate that he was able to go in, get the medical treatment necessary. And I think the virus will affect people differently. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels as though he gets ridiculed for just about anything he does. But I don't believe there was anybody within his, you know, space when he took the mask off. And I think it, it was really, a showing of, you know, we can get through this. I tested positive. I went through some of the medical treatments and, and did the things the doctors had suggested in terms of taking a few days going to Walter Reed. But I really think it shows um, strength that 
We, we know it's a serious virus, and, and we know there's a mortality rate attached to it, but we can't let it control our lives or our economies or our livelihoods. And I, I really didn't have a, an opinion one way or the other, but certainly not a negative opinion about it. Mm -hmm. What do you think about Michelle Lujan Grisham and her handling of uh, the pandemic? Um, as you know, we've had outbreaks in Eddy County and yeah. Chavez County and, you know, a lot of pushback about mask wearing. Yeah. I'm curious about your thoughts about how our governors handled it. You know, I, I've said this uh, uh, several times again, you know, we know it's a serious virus and we know that there is a mortality rate attached to it. And government's role in this case is to protect the health, safety and welfare of the people. But government's role is also to protect the health, safety, and welfare of our economy. And in my opinion, I believe that the local governments should have more power, more control, and more decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really feel it's a one-size-fits-all. And as I travel around the district, you know, what works for Santa Fe may not be the right fit for Jowl or Hagerman or Hatch. And I really think that the local governments and the people in those communities should have more of a voice at the table. Mm -hmm. because. What we've seen is, you know, a picking of, if you will, winners and losers in terms of uh, stores that remained open, right. uh, churches, those types of things. And it's been a disadvantage to our small business owners who've been closed or were closed for several weeks or months um, while we saw, you know, the Walmarts or the, the big box stores remain open. So I, I really feel uh, that there could have been better handling and allowing local governments mm -hmm. to, to make better decisions for their communities mm -hmm. and counties. Speaking of sort of a personal responsibility issue. You have a, your mask, yeah. walked in the studio, your staff has masks as well. Do you, do, do you find, do you feel that masks are an effective way to beat back the pandemic or are or, or you just following orders, so to speak? Normally I'm following orders. Okay. I think there's been a lot of misinformation on whether the masks, were, I mean, we've heard Dr. Fauci say that works uh, the masks don't work, they do. I think the misinformation, but I'm very respectful. So if I walk into a business that's going to mandate it, I will wear them. Um, you know, when I have events, I, I ask people to, if they're comfortable, wear a mask, if they don't, you know, but I, I do want to respect uh, others and respect businesses, owner, you know, business owners. And so for me, it's more of a respect issue. Uh, one thing that's certainly changed is COVID-19 is now a part of our lives as opposed to when you first came to office. Um, what is your opinion of how President Trump has handled the pandemic? How could he have done better, if anything? You know, right now we really need to get to another COVID-19 package. And uh, it's deeply frustrating that uh, all sides appear to have left the table uh, and, and have stopped negotiating, even when uh, we've been able to show in the House of Representatives that we can find bipartisan solutions. I was really proud to be part of uh, the Problem Solvers proposal, 25 Democrats, 25 Republicans, who the first time negotiations broke down, got back together and said, you know, what can, what common ground can we look at? Can we focus on? Mm -hmm. And it included a wide range of things, including state, local, and tribal funds. I, spot, I fought specifically for uh, inclusion of those tribal, that tribal piece. Um, it also included uh, unemployment and extension of unemployment benefits at a slightly reduced amount that could then be scaled based on what people were paid before the uh, unemployment, uh, before the, the pandemic. And then also it, it included uh, robust investments in education, whether there was a hybrid system or whether it was virtual or in person, uh, instead of trying to influence. Now, as we look at the national approach to COVID-19, I've certainly experienced from the New Mexico 
Mexico side, the challenges when it comes to getting the PPE and uh, good reliable testing results that happen quick enough so we can identify hot spots. Mm -hmm. And as we work uh, in New Mexico to have a regional response, a fundamental piece of that is making sure that we have uh, the testing capacity to identify those hot spots quickly. And I think that the national government could have done more to make sure to provide a national strategy uh, for that, that testing uh, for PPE and medical equipment. Uh, and also as once a safe vaccine that has been approved scientifically is available, there needs to be a, a national strategy for that as well. So that less populous states like New Mexico aren't competing against more populous states like California or New York uh, for the crucial tools to fight this virus. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you think companies that received millions of dollars in pandemic relief should show how they spent the money. Would you agree with that? I do think we need robust oversight. Uh, there is a balance between getting the money uh, to good use uh, to make sure that it gets out to reach uh, to reach the people and make a difference. But then we also have to ensure that there's oversight. And one of the examples of that for was the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program that went out to smaller businesses. But we saw in the first wave that it really did not reach those mom and pop shops, especially in New Mexico, that were competing against uh, better resourced, uh, publicly traded companies, for example, that already had much stronger relationships with the larger big banks. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until that second wave that we were able to get set-asides for the community lenders and really work to get uh, more support to the, the smallest of those businesses. So as we look at how some of those larger loans were distributed, I think there does need to be uh, appropriate oversight to make sure that, that it all was used according to plan. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, how do you feel about the president returning to the White House maskless and doing that little photo op and all that? How did that strike you when you saw that on the news? You know, one of the tragedies of COVID-19 for me has been seeing how the division of uh, between Republicans and Democrats has exacerbated the spread of the virus, that it's become a political statement rather than a statement of personal responsibility, that we can all uh, use the best uh, social distancing measures as well as masks. And, and so that's why I think uh, it is a matter of personal responsibility, but people have the opportunity uh, to really show that we care about our neighbors mm -hmm. uh, and that we are dedicated to defeating this uh, by, by setting a good example. All right, let's head back to the line opinion table now, such as it is virtually on Zoom. Uh, call it the Brady Bunch experience, but we appreciate people taking the time to participate. And no doubt, uh, none of us have forgotten about COVID-19. It's not gone away. And in fact, we are seeing some of the highest daily case counts that we have seen during the entire pandemic. We seem to be hitting a bit of a resurgence, and that's right as we head into flu season. I want to use this opportunity to encourage people to get their flu shots, uh, get them early. This is something that um, the uh, Human Services Department Secretary David Scrace and the Governor Michelle Luan Grisham have been saying repeatedly. Uh, lots of ways to do that, but we wanted to uh, chat with the folks on the line a little bit more about what may be behind the resurgence and how we should be handling it. I don't know if any of us were in danger of forgetting the coronavirus, but just in case, the president has it. You might have heard about that. Our governor is quarantining. 
And uh, yeah, the state's case counts are rising into problematic, problematic territory. Let's start here at home. Inez, are we headed for renewed restrictions? And a reminder, we record this panel on Thursday, so there might well be some changes afoot by the time we air. But same question, Inez, what, what do you think on that? I think that um, I have no idea, basically, and yeah. I'm not going to predict what the governor's going to do. She's going to be discussing it Thursday afternoon, so we'll, we'll find out in a couple of hours. Yep. I yep. do think that uh, what she spoke about a few weeks ago, that people are getting COVID fatigue, is something that we all need to take to heart. Mm -hmm. uh, we know the public health precautions at work, and we just need to follow them and do our best to stay safe. Uh, because if we don't, our children are not going to be back in school. Small businesses are going to be crippled forever, and we're going to be in a world of hurt. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the idea is that we need to look out for each other and look at it as a way of trying to make sure that I wear my mask so you don't get sick mm -hmm. and just carry that down the chain. And if we can try to do that, it doesn't matter what restrictions there are, we'll be taking care of ourselves so the numbers won't go up. Right. Let me ask you about an out and about point of view for Santa Fe. I haven't been to Santa Fe in, in months now because I'm not going anywhere. What do you, I, I, I get mixed reports about what mask use and distancing is like in Santa Fe. What, do you, what are you seeing and what are you hearing? Well, I see um, pretty good compliance. I don't go out very much. I, we work at home and uh, my basic, uh, out and about is I walk in the morning with a friend and on the trail and this is at 5:30 and 6 in the morning almost everyone I see is masked even in the dark nice. which I think is pretty good compliance at the grocery store it's pretty good uh, almost a hundred percent and that's and then at the chicken feed store where we go to get feed for our chickens which you know is, is sort of uh, you think of that maybe as a more rural segment of population that might be more individualistic they actually are wearing masks mm with a few guys that don't cover their noses. But other than that, it's it, I, what I see is good. Gotcha. Hey, Sophie, you got to talk about kids and school. You know, we've mm -hmm. got Santa Fe, of course, going back to a hybrid model here real quick. And Albuquerque is not too far behind. But cases are ticking up amongst kids and amongst our school system statewide. Again, not to ask you for predictions, but what's your sense of how we're entering in, into this phase, especially going into flu season in winter here right around the corner? Well, there's, I mean, there's one prediction I can make, which mm -hmm. is that the governor this week is not going to announce that our caseload has dropped dramatically, um, that, uh, you know, our borders are open, et cetera, et cetera. My expectation is that we will continue to see something very similar and perhaps even a, a little bit more stringent. But my suspicion is we stay close to the same. We'll see. I may be wrong. Um, but it's worth noting that last Thursday, uh, the government, governor reported, um, pardon me, uh, our, our education secretary reported 205 school-related cases across mm -hmm. 170, 107, pardon me, schools right. across the state. The majority of these cases are staff members, so people who may not have as much ability to stay home the way that, that mm. kids are able to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and 55 of those cases involved small group or hybrid classes. So, so being in the classroom has been an issue for about a quarter of the, of the folks. Many of the cases come in from, you know, they believe that the infection happened outside of the schools. But you, you can see the state is watching this very carefully because while at the beginning of the pandemic, there was some belief that children were not getting the disease right. we're not spreading the disease we now know the research shows that that's not true and mm -hmm. so um and I, i'll point out too that great bit of research that was done by i believe it was the sandia prep 
uh, student on how schools can be vectors for disease and how one of the best ways to prevent prevent outbreaks is to take kids out of school. So we're really we're at the other end of that, and and it will be um, it's it's uh, something that we're all going to want to keep an eye on, even if you don't have kids in the school systems, as I don't. Um, the rapid responses that we're seeing, which is uh, you know. Uh, work with local businesses, New Mexico businesses that have outbreaks at their businesses. Mm -hmm. Those are still quite high in the hundreds per week. Um, our positivity rate is is up at 3%. And I think it's worth noting, if you want to come to New Mexico, uh, you have to quarantine or take a test if your positivity rate at your state is 5% or above. I'd right. like to see us not get to the point where we wouldn't be allowed to travel into our own state, basically. I'd like to see us <laughs> down, down a bit lower. Um, and as Inez has said, we all have a, a role to play in trying to yeah. try and make that possible. Dan, are you are you uh, considering you and the fam traveling this winter? Are you going to take a plane anywhere? And if yes, are, are, are you comfortable with it? Uh, so we we you know right before right as the pandemic kind of kicked off, we went on a trip to Florida. Um, you know, before everything really took off, there was you know you were hearing about it, but we you know we flew at the time there was. You know, there was uh, me, no one between us, and then Debbie sat next to me, and then there was a row skip behind you, mm -hmm. and then the kids were sitting there. We rented a house so that we didn't, you know, stay in a hotel. So, no, now I don't think we're going to do – we're doing much of anything. I mean, other than we've been – you know, we do stuff in our motorhome mm -hmm. um, because we're self-contained. We load up from here, and then we, you know, just kind of go out and do the things you want to do um, that way. Um, but no, I don't, I don't, I don't foresee, foresee us doing much, uh, especially since they're not allowing fans to go to the football games. There's no reason to go traveling around to that stuff. So mm -hmm. you know, we've pretty much been hungered down and just kind of doing our stuff, trying to save as much money for when this is over and be able to hit sure. the road and, and do things. Let me ask you this, Dan, you know, it's hard to quantify all the different ways the president has really sort of <laughs> woven his way into masks, out of masks, defiance, non-defiance. This whole thing with Walter Reed and now back in the White House and back in the West Wing, is there damage done here? What's your, what's your view of what the president has done to this whole idea of being safe and getting people to think safely about COVID? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's clear. Look, it's clear that the president, um, you know, doesn't think that COVID is, is at the level of a, of, a, of a pandemic as other people think it is. Uh, it's clear that he thinks of it as a as just a, a worse flu. Right. Um, and so, you know, he has said, listen, you know, uh, from what I understand and things I've said, he has said, listen, you're going to get the flu. You're going to get the super flu, which is the coronavirus. Things are going to happen, but life has to go on. Um, and I think it's been a simple decision, right? It's it's I mean, if you look at the presidential race right now, uh, it's a simple decision, right? You couldn't see two clear differences in someone who says, listen, you know, the economy is a major problem. Losing these small businesses is a problem. And I'm not I'm focusing on that. Mm -hmm. And then you got another candidate who says, listen, I'm going to focus on the coronavirus and we got to get that in check first and we got to fight that. Um, I just think it's interesting because I think that's kind of an example of the people in this country. I think there's a lot of people who say, look, I'm going to take care of myself. I don't need the government to lock me down. I'm going to you know, if I go someplace and people aren't being careful, I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. I got to say, you know, when I go to the stores, we've been to Costco, we've been to Walmart, we've been to the places here with a family. I have yet to go in one of those stores and, and see anybody without a mask. Okay. Um, okay. I mean, they, they, they're they pretty, 
pretty big at telling you you can't come in. Sure. Um, so I just I just think that the president is, you know, it's clear. Everybody keeps trying to portray that he's got this, you know, ulterior motive. I think he's been very open. He doesn't think it's that big of a deal. Sure. And I think now that he's had it and got it and he's moving on. That's right. He thinks it's even less of a big deal. Let me swing on Inez. Same question. Your sense of what this does. How does this land in the general population? That's my concern here, I guess. I, I think 200,000 plus Americans have died, and most of us know one or more of those people. So when someone tells me it's not a big deal, and I think of my friend who was retired in Mexico, who was living a great life with his wife, went to the hospital, posted and said, I'm doing great. I'll tell you what it's like in COVID ward. And then we got the news the next day that he was dead. Oh boy. I'm sorry, it is a big deal. And when I see someone flouting safety precautions and getting everyone around him sick, I just want him to go away. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean I don't think we don't need to get back to our lives. We're going to have to find an accommodation to live with this virus and to do our lives and to keep businesses going, to keep schools and children learning. But that doesn't mean you don't take public safety precautions. The fact that the Supreme Court ceremony for Amy Coney Barrett was a super spreader event says everything about this moment in our country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they might have made their own committee so sick that they won't have a quorum to do the votes. For Supreme Court, I, I'm sorry. that's interesting, I, isn't I it? Just, yeah. just because you don't think it's a big deal doesn't mean you can not follow public safety, I mean, you know, health safety. Mm-hmm. It's just ridiculous. Gotcha. We're back with this crew in a few minutes to talk about payday lending and the latest idea to protect people from predatory loans. Well, the bad news just continues to pile up. I know that's not breaking any new ground, but uh, something else that's been in the headlines, we've been talking about it on the show, is the fact that the Rio Grande River is drying up in stretches. I think it was back in July. We took folks down to around San Antonio, where it was completely dry. That is continuing to stretch. Those dry stretches are getting longer, stretching further across the state, expected to dry up even here in parts of Albuquerque within the next days, two weeks. And, of course, a lot of this is um, due to climate change. Laura Paskus, our Arland correspondent, has been covering this at length for years and, uh, of course, recently as well. And specifically, we wanted to talk this week about some of the impacts of a drying Rio Grande. So she sat down with some folks from the Bosque del Apache, uh, del Apache uh, National Wildlife Refuge to talk about the impact on the wildlife out there, and particularly the sandhill cranes, who would normally be coming through about this time of year and actually have started in a little bit earlier, as you will hear. But here now, Laura Pascas. The Rio Grande has been dry near San Antonio and the Bosque del Apache National Wildlife Refuge for more than four months. That's the entire summer. Now the Albuquerque stretch of the river is also critically low. It could even dry this month as warm, dry conditions persist. Those conditions have all sorts of impacts, including on sandhill cranes and other migratory birds arriving into Mexico for the season. Correspondent Laura Pascas talked this week with Deborah Williams and Dan Collins at Bosque del Apache and has an Our Land update. 
The river has been dry near San Antonio and the refuge for about four months now, but now is the time of year with migratory birds returning that the refuge needs water to fill its ponds. Is that right? What are conditions like on the refuge right now? Um, the conditions are actually as, as good as we could expect considering the water levels that we've had all summer. We've been working closely with the Bureau of Reclamation and the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District to try to ensure that we do get some adequate agricultural tailwaters down to the refuge to be able to prepare for the, the bird's arrival. Um, we have been able to plant 120 acres of corn and approximately 110 acres of triticale this year. So those are our grain crops. Um, we won't have as many moist soil units uh, as we've had in some years um, because we are a bit water limited and we don't know what the fall is going to look like. Um, but as far as our traditional grain crops, we were able to get crops in the ground. We've been successful at irrigating them. This week we're doing our uh, seed yield count. So I can't tell you yet what those seed yields will be, um, but we are, we are hopeful that we're prepared well for our migrating friends to arrive. So in terms of filling up those ponds for the sandhill cranes and the geese and the other migrating birds, um, how are you going to be going about that this fall? Will that be with irrigation water or groundwater? How's that going to happen? We always hope to be able to use irrigation water because that's a more cost-friendly alternative for the refuge. But in conversations with the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District and BOR, we aren't expecting to have much available agricultural tailwaters this year. So we'll probably be relying quite significantly on our 16 groundwater wells, um, which means we probably won't have as much roosting habitat this year as in a year with a lot of available water in the system. So Dan, can you talk a little bit about how this year's dry conditions on the river and in general might affect some of these species that we're used to seeing in the fall and winter? You know, it might, it might make them pick a different roost site, but in my experiences, it's, they're going to pick an area that is going to be close to a foraging resource. So they will roost on dry land habitat um, to be close to that, that resource to, to make that flight as short as possible. So, so not having water will, will sort of monkey them up a little bit, but it, it's not going to impact them as much as we, we think it will. They're pretty plastic. So that's, you know, here in Albuquerque, the river is at a historic low for, for this time of year. And we're anticipating that the river will likely dry soon in the Albuquerque stretch. And I know I've seen some sandhill cranes showing up. And um, frankly, it just seems kind of sad to see them, you know, hanging out in the in the dry riverbed or in the, the very low riverbed. Is this something that people should be concerned about for this winter for those populations? For, for one year, no, there shouldn't be any concern. Now, now, if it gets to be where it's several years, you know, added on top of one another and it starts to have that cascading effect, then yes. Um, but when you're talking about these semi-arid systems, um, you know, these rivers, they're, they're pretty dynamic in nature uh, and they have gone dry before and the birds will, will either stick around and hang out for a year or figure it out and maybe go to parts further south. 
are there concerns at the refuge about as the as the region continues to warm, you know, how we will weather bad years one after another after another into the future? Uh, absolutely. We're definitely concerned about um, conditions going into the future. We've been talking really closely with uh, MRGCD and BOR and to our understanding that um, next year could actually be worse conditions than this year. It looks like we're going into a La Nina snowpack year. So one of the things we're really focusing on is improving our drought resiliency. We're uh, working with some engineers to look at um, all of our ditches and canals on the refuge and determine if there are ways that we could improve their efficacy and their design to help make the refuge more drought resilient um, as we look towards kind of limited water resources, you know, both next year, but long term into the future if we start to see more frequent drought years. So whenever we cover issues like um, river drying or impacts on wildlife, it, New Mexicans certainly care about these things very much. I'm wondering, Dan or Deborah, if you have any um, any insight for people who often want to be able to do something um, to help in some way. I'm wondering if you have any advice for people. I've got a couple things. One thing is to buy a duck stamp. <laughs> so duck stamp dollars go directly towards wetland um, enhancement, creation, and purchase. So, so that will uh, ensure that we can have good production of wetland dependent species coming down to the state of New Mexico. And then also realize that um, while, you know, with, with climate change and other things going on that our feathered friends, you know, they have, they have feathers for a reason. So they, they'll pick up and, and most of these birds are pretty plastic. And, and what we're seeing in, in our analyses is that the snowpack driven, um, systems are being impacted, but those like further south in Mexico that are more monsoonally driven, those, those wetlands are actually maintaining their wetland extent. So there will be water to our south in years where we might be dry here in New Mexico. So it might just be a trade-off to know that, that they will be taken care of in Mexico. Well, um, Bosque del Apache is certainly one of my favorite places in the state. And um, Dan and Deborah, I definitely appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for being concerned about the refuge, caring about the resources and helping raise awareness in the, in the community. Um, you'd asked about other ways to, to get involved and certainly at least at the refuge, we do have a really active friends group. So I just always encourage people, if you care about Bosque del Apache National Wildlife Refuge, consider um, getting involved with the friends group and seeing how you can make a difference through a nonprofit organization. We'll finish things up with the line this week by looking at a new proposal from Think New Mexico. That's a think tank here that uh, has had a lot of successful policy legislative pushes over the years, and they have a new proposal out that would deal with payday lending, something that is not new to the state in terms of uh, ridiculously high interest rates that really force people to um, stay in tough times because they end up paying, having to pay back much more than they loan or borrow in the first place and can get underwater very quickly. 
Uh, I think New Mexico has a new plan out. You can read more about that on their website or on our website, newmexicoinfocus.org. But we want to get the line and their reaction to this new proposal and see how they think it might fare if it makes it into the legislative session next year. A Santa Fe-based think tank wants to take another swing at payday lending practices. Think New Mexico, which has had some notable legislative successes, says the cap on interest rates at 175% doesn't go far enough to protect consumers. And Dan, the group wants a 36% cap, and this is important, also financial literacy classes to be part of a high school education requirement. How's that last part sound to you? Financial literacy is a, is, a, is a huge issue, you know, but financial literacy classes don't do any good if you're trapped in a, you know, a systemic pro- problem with poverty, right? I mean, if you're, if you're raised in a poor family with very poor opportunities, living in rural New Mexico, giving someone a class on financial literacy is, I don't know if that solves the problem, right? The only opportunity you have to borrow money is to go to the payday loan company. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may just make you more aware of the problem you're creating. Is, it, is it more of a chicken and egg thing? If you've got the literacy, you may not get in this kind of situation that may need a, a payday lender to bail you I out mean, of? Yeah. You know, the interesting part is, you know, is that I think, I think it's a Band-Aid on a bleeding artery, right? If you're just going to say, hey, look, we're going to, I think it's another piece of feel-good mm-hmm. philosophy, right? We're going to, hey, we're going to tell people that they shouldn't do this. We're going to give them a quick class on it. And then, you know, hopefully that stems the problem. And I just, I'm not sure it will. Sophie, pick up on that. I mean, education is an important part of your life. And this goes without saying. Does this work in this case? In the, and I want to get to the, the percentages in a second, but I'm interested in this high school literacy. Some folks are very enthusiastic about this long before Think New Mexico. They have thought this should be a standard way to have a high schooler get through his or her classes. Yeah, What's your a, thought? There, there's a national discussion about whether uh, whether like calculus or trigonometry, things like that are as important to high school students as data analysis, financial literacy, et cetera, that, that they're is kind of a movement towards a change in how we think about math education. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the the financial literacy element for high schools is the no-brainer part of this. Okay. Now, to be clear, I also think that the payday lending part is kind of a no-brainer, but I think it's going to be a much harder piece to pass mm-hmm. um, in the legislature because it is a big change. Right now, payday lenders can charge up to 175% right. of the value of the loan in, in interest. Most states were the third highest interest rate state in the country. We're way behind everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, most states are quite a bit lower. 36% is not unusual in the country. And what's interesting is that our military families here in New Mexico and across the country, they are subject to only 36%. So this right. would be bringing the rest of New Mexico in line with what is clearly necessary mm-hmm. for military families. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument always is that we'll lose this form of lending that that helps people who are truly desperate and don't have other resources. But what we see in other states that have capped their payday lending at a lower rate is that the payday lenders adjust and they continue to lend. Inez, you got to pick up on that. Doesn't it seem pretty obvious that's what would happen here? Yes, and I think the key is for in passing legislation is to make sure there are other avenues of people who are broke to get money that don't further bankrupt them. The mm-hmm. problem with payday lending is that once you're paying that sort of interest, you can never get ahead. So I think, you know, letting people find out about credit unions, setting up small businesses that lend money that don't charge an arm and a leg, maybe just a finger, 
uh, will help people be able to get the money they need when they need it mm -hmm. without putting themselves in a hole they can't dig themselves out of. That's right. Uh, and as Dan Boyd had a great piece uh, in the journal a little bit ago that showed that 60% of storefront loan shops are within 10 miles of tribal land. That cannot be an accident. That cannot be no. a coincidence. So, you know, how do we deal with that as well? I think that uh, the history of predatory lending in border towns is just one of those ugly marks that we have in New Mexico. Card, they, there was that old story where they went to car dealers uh, on the border and they had an, a non-Indian person get a loan and an Indian person try to buy a car and what they charged them if you were Indian was ridiculous. Right. So I think you just have to stop people from preying on folks who are broke. Right. Hey, Dan, another vulnerable group out there is our military folks. I'm curious in your life experience, I'm not asking about your personal finances, but have you known folks in your You've military life that have been victimized by this? Interviewing my wife. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, look, there, there's there's a lot to be said about payday lending, good and bad, right? I mean, there's a lot to be said about the fact that, you know, it does seem crazy if you borrow $100 mm -hmm. and you pay back 125 you know, people have to say, oh, my God, look at the amount of interest you've, you've borrowed, you've paid and all of that stuff. You know, I, I'd argue you look at your credit card statement and put $20,000 in your credit card and see what happens if you make the minimum payment of 500 bucks a month. It's going to be, you know, 47 years before you pay that 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 money off. So, you know, I, I, I mean, well, Dan, Dan, let me ask you this. Why is it so hard to get change in our legislature on this issue? What because is this magic people, spell these people have on our elected folks? You're going to cut off an entire. The problem is that we heard all the time from individuals is that nobody wants to have the conversation about is payday lending a great deal? No, I'm not saying it is, and I'm not saying it's bad. But most of the people that go to these payday lending companies cannot walk into Wells Fargo and get a loan. They cannot walk into Bank of America and get a loan. Does and that so mean they need to get stabbed at 175% just because they can't? Sounds better than borrowing it from lefty two thumbs over there who's going to break your arm when you don't pay the money back. And that seems to be the alternative. Yeah. Right? Well, right. That's why we need better alternatives, which I think they can set up. Right. Well, we, have better, we have better alternatives, and they're called... Uh, they're called credit unions, and there's there's local banks that we should be focusing on that we don't do a lot in this state to support local but, but banks. But can't we can't we help these people out at thirty six percent? I mean, do we have to do it at one hundred seventy five percent? That's an important point. Mm -hmm. You know, the 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 movement from New Mexico had something closer to thirty six percent up until the the eighties, and right. then the interest rates in the eighties is those of us who were alive then will remember, mm -hmm. skyrocketed. They were insane. And so that cap was lifted at that time because it, it seems to me that at that point, the, the difference between what they were lending at and what their own cost to get the money was, was pretty close. But now, as we know, if you've tried to put money into a savings account, the interest rates are like, nothing. I mean, That's they're right. so low. And so that difference between the 175% and the cost to get money, um, to, you know, from the, like, that's huge. It's a huge difference. That's right. This is cash cow, in a it, like it's the definition of cash cow. And they seem pretty protected industry. along the and way so too. Hey, we're out of time, guys. Sorry about that. Thanks to you three for boning up. Sorry, so it's my fault there. Thanks to you three for boning up on our topics. Our land is next. Closing in on the home stretch of this week's show before we go. It is the second Friday of the month, which means it's time for our land. We heard from Laura Paskus a little earlier on the Rio Grande. 
And we wanted to also update a, a past story that we've done on our land in light of recent weather occurrences. This time we're not talking about dry conditions and drought, but wind. It's a couple weeks ago, two, three weeks ago now, we had a massive windstorm here in the valley around Albuquerque. Damaged a lot of trees. I, do, I know most everybody who's got trees face some kind of damage or even death of the tree, which is which is just terrible. And so we start off this update by heading to Laura's own yard to find out about some of the problems she had with her trees, as well as the advice she got from the experts about what to do about the trees, which leads to the piece that we did about a year and a half ago about urban forests, how we foster them, how we nurture them, and why they are so important, especially in a city like Albuquerque. So here now is Laura Paskus. At the end of September, my crab apple tree got whacked by a windstorm. Like lots of people around Albuquerque who had the same thing happen in their yards, I started wondering what I should do with my yard. So I called in an arborist who came to look at the tree and talk about kind of the future of it. He said that even if I decide to save this crab apple tree, I should be thinking about a replacement tree. He asked me what kind of tree I like, and of course, because I live in Albuquerque, I said a cottonwood. He said cottonwoods aren't a great bet for Albuquerque as the region gets warmer and drier, and I should think about something like a desert willow or a redbud. Also checked in with my friend Marisa Thompson, who works for the New Mexico State University's Extension Services. She also cautioned against cottonwoods, but she said she realizes that's an unpopular thing for people to hear because we do all love our cottonwood trees, but they need a lot of water, they get really big, and they tend to break branches off. So in thinking about the future, I asked around what I should be doing and found out that the Nature Conservancy actually has on its website a guide for climate-ready tree planting made especially for people who are living here in New Mexico and Albuquerque who want to think about replacement trees for the future. And this guide can help you whether you're looking for big trees, small trees, whatever kind of space you have. Two years ago for Our Land, we visited with arborist Joran Veers, who talked to us about the importance of urban trees and urban forests and how to plan for those to be healthy as the region gets warmer and drier. So here's that show. Wildland foresters are concerned with board feet and lumber. What we are concerned with is how do we keep our trees healthy? How do we grow good trees? Uh, how do we grow them in a way that keeps them safe for people who live and work and move around those trees? So this is a planting that I think is a really nice example. I really like this. These trees have been given a... Doran Beers is a forester who works not in the forests, but right here in Albuquerque. He pays attention to the city's urban forest, the trees in our parks and medians, neighborhoods and yards. My role is largely in the parks, but also more broadly to oversee tree care uh, in the city um, in terms of planning and planting and maintenance and removals and just trying to have kind of a, uh, an overall vision of what we're trying to do with our urban forest. How do we support it and how do we allow it to give us the benefits that an urban forest does provide. And those benefits are many, from providing habitats for wildlife to the electricity savings from the valuable shade the trees provide. 
effect. We have a tremendous heat island effect issue in this city because of all of the concrete, the asphalt, the gravel out there, and that kind of green shade really helps to, to bring that down. We also have stormwater retention benefits, uh, and that's an area that we're increasingly looking at how do we design our stormwater systems so that we can bring that water uh, into the landscape first and settle it there before it hits the whole stormwater system, and that actually makes that system last a lot longer. Here you can see a really good example of uh, the value of soil volume for trees and how well they can grow. We've got these trees that are planted in this fairly wide cutout with plant material all throughout and irrigation all throughout. These sycamores were planted less than four years ago and they have just shot up out of the ground. And in large part that's due to the fact that they have uncompacted irrigated soil, sufficient volume of that to really allow for good growth. So we can look and see they are holding lots of leaves, nice thick canopy, um, not a lot of blue sky that you can see through it, not a lot of dead branch tips in the canopy, and that tells us that these are trees growing really well. What we see on the other side of the street is the same species planted at the same time, going in at the same size, and the average size of those trees is much smaller than the average size of these trees. They're doing okay, but what's limiting them is they're in a very narrow cutout and there isn't a whole lot of extra irrigation going in there to support additional plant material. So they're already beginning to feel the effect of that limited soil volume. So the right kind of soil and irrigation are key, but Veer says that costs money, which leads to another planning decision one of quality over quantity. You know, maybe in new developments we require less trees, but we require more resources per tree, so that we then actually get the results that we want uh, without overly burdening the developer with the costs of installation. Um, I would rather have, you know, two or three really nice trees than ten that have to be pulled out every five years because they're dead again. And what kinds of trees you decide to plant is another important piece of the puzzle. The city has come up with some unique approaches to identifying species that work in our unique climate, especially as the impacts of climate change continue to hit home. We have a little nursery that the city runs and my vision for that nursery is to use it as kind of a testing ground. Let's bring in stuff that isn't currently available in the market locally, but appears like it would do well, uh, grow it up in the nursery to a size where we can put it out into parks and other landscapes and then see how it does. Because in the end, Veer says, the vitality of a city can be measured in part by the health of its trees and plant life. There's good research from the social sciences about how much the exposure to nature uh, provides emotional and social benefits. Uh, in a residential environment, you find lower levels of stress, you find more community engagement, and so there's just a whole host of different kinds of benefits that the urban forest can help us with. For New Mexico in Focus in Our Land, I'm Laura Paskus. All right, we thank you as always for listening. We'll wrap it up today with some final thoughts from Gene Grant about what else but elections and voting. 
uh, absentee voting did start this week, this past Tuesday, although you can still request your absentee ballot up until October 20th. We will encourage everybody to uh, get that request in or to be thinking about voting. If you're with someone who really wants to do it in person, we encourage you to do it safely. Take all those COVID-safe precautions, but it's an important uh, a privilege and a right we have to cast our votes, and you'll be able to start to do that in person starting on the 17th of October. So that's just around the corner as well. Once again, encourage you to head to our website to catch all of our election coverage to date. We'll have more as the days wind down, and uh, we appreciate you listening as always. We will see you again next week, but before we go, here's Gene Grant. Given this roller coaster year, it's hard to imagine that we are now inside 30 days from Election Day. And now that we're inside that early voting window, the long lines at the clerk's annex on Loma starting on day one tails the tale. Those lines are long. Now, for folks like me who like going to the voting booth on Election Day, it may be worth considering giving those early voting locations a try because Election Day itself, those lines may be even longer. How the numbers shake out and how many of us voted early is a story yet to be told. But what we do know right now is our officials, those women and men who work all year so we can vote with confidence, have gotten the job done. And we thank them for that. Thanks again for joining us, for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week.